This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. This is the first day of classes at the University of Arkansas, John Brown University, and the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. Classes start tomorrow at the University of the Ozarks in Clarksville. Students at Northeastern State in Tahlequah already into the groove. Their classes started last week. We'll start our first show of this week with an examination of how a growing population is having an impact on our natural resources. For years, the word has been going out that the outdoors here are worthy of attention. And, as Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports, more people are visiting those forests. Amber King usually keeps large, heavy-duty contractor trash bags and a pair of gloves in her Jeep. King and her family ride in the vehicle with the doors and hardtop off to look at waterfalls, kayak, and stop at the closest swimming holes in the Ozark St. Francis National Forest. My kids, we enjoy being outside. We enjoy being by the water. That's our sanctuary. That's, I literally, I call it church. <laughs> Whenever they are out, they pick up trash. They aren't part of a volunteer organization. King says it's part of their outing. For weeks, King says she has been carrying away full trash bag after full trash bag at one space she visits. Uh, countless diapers, sanitary products, condoms, drug paraphernalia, bottles. I mean, you name it, we're pulling it out. The National Forest spans over 13 counties, including Crawford County, where King lives. Visits to the forest doubled from 2005 to 2019 to about 2.5 million, according to the National Use Monitoring Survey. As more people move to Arkansas or become interested in outdoor recreation, this also means more wildlife and landscape is impacted, mainly with trash. King says some places to swim closed because of the waste visitors leave. And then I have a love for animals and the injuries that I, I have a friend that runs a 501, you know, three uh, rescue and the injuries that, you know, she has seen animals come through with is just, you know, it's just because of ignorance, pure ignorance. A popular site for people to kick off their shoes and go for a swim is the Natural Dam, a natural ledge running across the Mountain Fork Creek. Outside, it's over 100 degrees, and only a couple of swimmers are in its cool water. But as it gets hotter, more people use it. This is Robert Dugan, the Forest Recreation Program Manager, and he says U.S. Forest Service recreation technicians can spend up to an hour cleaning sites like this every day before moving on to another place. Although forest recreation technicians help manage the grounds, there are 1.2 million acres of the Ozark St. Francis National Forest to cover. It's just more people using the woods and we're spread thin and we just do the best we can with the staffing we have. Because of the amount of visitors' waste left, Dugan says organizations and people like King help clean up and maintain parts of the forest. Some areas, like the Natural Dam, are operated under minimal use. There is a parking lot, some trash service, and a pack-in and pack-out signing. Dugan says this tells patrons to take back whatever they bring in. We're putting signs up, informing people on what to do, how to pack it in, pack it out. And we just do, it's minimal management because of the amount of people that come out here and we don't have the people to come out here and check it on a daily basis. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, parks, forests, and other recreation areas experienced an uptick in visitors. So the forest emphasized policies like leave no trace seven principles. This includes not taking things from the area or the packing in and packing out rule to minimize impact on public land. Dugan says in addition to cleaning up areas, other projects and conservation practices are in motion. The main thing we're working on is besides we have a Great America Outdoor Act, and that is some investments we're making in various recreation areas across the forest and road investments, infrastructure investments. Besides that, we have our normal maintenance, normal issues, like we have trails that are slumping off. There's landslides on some of the trails, on some of the roads also. But we're working on evaluating how do we fix it with the least amount of people, the least cost, but it's the most sustainable way of doing things. Mary Wood, a public affairs specialist for the U.S. Forest Service, says the park works with other agencies such as the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission to stop some illegal activity. You know, the more rural you get, 
the more out of the public eye that you get, a lot of those activities kind of increase, but it affects people, you know, like the family that's here today. It affects them in the long run. It just, you know, makes the area a little less safe, so we were able to stop some of that activity. Because more people are continuing to use the forest, Woods says land management policies like Leave No Trace will be emphasized. And so I think that with the rise in urban bike systems or suburban bike systems, as those grow, just the the major trail systems, especially here in the south, that it's kind of gaining traction here in the south, you're going to hear a lot more about Leave No Trace and impacts to public lands and what people can actually do to, to help minimize those. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. Three law enforcement officers from Crawford County seen in a video hitting and kicking a man as well as slamming his head into the ground are suspended pending an investigation into the incident. The video, taken by an onlooker, was shared on social media yesterday and quickly became viral. The 27-year-old man, identified as a resident of South Carolina, was taken to a hospital for examination before being booked for several charges. Governor Asa Hutchinson says he's talked with Colonel Bill Bryant with the Arkansas State Police and an investigation into the incident will be underway. The video shows two Crawford County deputies and a Mulberry police officer. Arkansas's unemployment is up slightly in the latest report. July's rate is 3.3 percent. That's up from 3.2 percent rate for June. Michael Pacow, chief economist and state economic forecaster at the Institute for Economic Advancement at the University of Arkansas Little Rock, writes in a report for the Arkansas Economist that the unemployment rate for Arkansas remains lower than the national average. He also notes a rising number of unemployed in Arkansas is certainly a concern, particularly in the context of July being the fourth consecutive month of increase, but Pacow also writes the state's labor force has continued to expand. It turns out that the Arctic is sort of the mirror to the Earth. The, uh, all the computer climate models, all the, uh, all the theories predict that whatever's going to happen to the rest of the Earth will happen first and to the greatest extent in the Arctic. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy Monday to you, Randy Dixon. Thank you. Same to you, Kyle. Randy is with the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. What did we just hear? Well, that was actually an interview from 25 years ago. I can't believe it's been 25 years. But that was a scientist with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, 25 years ago, I went to... Barrow, Alaska. You cannot get much further. No, that is the highest point in, yeah. in America. Yeah. Um, it's about 350 miles above the Arctic Circle. And we went in January, and it was cold. <laughs> but, all right, you think about it, uh, 25 years ago, um, I, I took our chief meteorologist, Ned Permy, up to do a series of reports on what was new at the time, global warming. And uh, like I said, we went up in January. It was really cold. Well, we get off the plane, get in the car, and this was the forecast that we heard on the radio. Elsewhere, mainly north winds, 10 to 20 miles per hour. Temperatures falling to between 10 and 20 below. Tonight, continued quite windy in Attigan Pass with blowing snow and wind chills to 80 below. You know, the first few seconds you go, well, okay, that's cold. But then you hear about the blowing snow and the wind chills. You go, oh, oh, that's 80 deadly. below. Yeah, that's dead. Yeah, and I'm thinking, this. why are we here? Um, <laughs> it was your idea, though, right? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Um, so anyway, we, we get up there, and uh, we'll get into to some of the challenges we had. But here's just a snippet of an on-camera portion of Ned Permy's report. It's 12 noon, just before sunrise at the Arctic Circle. Wind chill factor, I can't describe it, 60 below zero. And everything behind me looks like a big snow field. It's actually water. It's the Arctic Ocean, and I'm standing on it. And you can nine months out of the year. On the ocean. Yeah. Standing on the ocean. At that time, at least, you could do nine months a year. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and the only way you could get there is fly in. You couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't go by water because there was no water. It was all, wow. it was all frozen over. But 
you know, this being 1997, the idea of global warming was fairly new. Um, so we wanted to show, you know, the work and the research that was going on up there um, and also how what their studies would affect the, uh, the weather down here in Arkansas. I talked to Ned last week and asked him to, to just kind of reflect on the significance of that trip and that series of reports. The word was out that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was beginning to test environmental and climate change. Um, and the one place that they were looking to test this was in the Arctic regions, because that's in the Arctic regions, that's where you really start to see if there's a shift or a change in ice production, ice manufacturing, whatever you will, um, whether there's change from year to year in the ice belt in the Arctic Circle area. It's not a trip you forget, is it? Oh, no. <laughs> no. So, so how long were you there? We were there uh, just about a week. But, you know, it took pretty much two days of travel sure. to get there because sure. we had to fly Little Rock, uh, I believe it was to Denver, to Seattle, to Anchorage, to Juneau, and then a small plane up to Barrow. So it was, it was quite a trek. So when you are there, after you've arrived there, what do you do? Well— First of all, we, we got checked into the only hotel, which was called the Top of the World Hotel. And um, I had been in contact with these NOAA weather people. They had two stations up there, but we spent the day at uh, the main weather bureau in Barrow with the station chief, and his name was Dan uh, Enders. And uh, here he is gathering atmospheric samples that they would they would collect every day and ended up back then sending them off to be tested. What we're going to do here is open these bottles under a vacuum and suck in some air, and then we send it off to our lab in Boulder, and they analyze it for carbon dioxide, which is important for the greenhouse effect. And the greenhouse effect is what may determine how, how hot the temperatures get. Um, it's like throwing an extra blanket on your bed at night to stay warm. Again, this is from work you did 25 years ago, 1997. You're talking about climate change and uh, global warming, and you're talking to this fellow who works for NOAA. Right, and so we wanted to know um, what he was doing there and what kind of effects it, it might have in the future. In the early 70s, it was decided that with all the increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the increasing methane and the increasing freons, that something needed to be done to measure how these levels were changing. And the Arctic is an ideal place to measure these changes. Um, a lot of the computer programmers decided that the Arctic was like a mirror to the rest of the uh, world as far as climate. What happens to the rest of the world will happen here first and to the largest extent. Um, increased carbon dioxide will lead to an increase in the greenhouse effect, which is the warming because the carbon dioxide gets into the atmosphere and builds up. It lets the sunlight come in and warm the earth up, but it will not let the heat escape back out. And that warms up the atmosphere, which warms up the earth, melts the ice cap, will have rising sea levels. Um, plants will probably end up growing further north than they used to. Um, Arkansas probably won't be able to grow the kind of crops they grow now. What's, cotton's big there. Cotton may end up being grown in Kansas and Michigan. Um, Arkansas may end up being in the banana belt if these, if these increases happen the way some people predict. I know that in preparing this week's Prior Center Profiles for us, Randy Dixon, you called back that station in Barrow where you were 25 years ago. Yes. Um, now, Dan has retired, but I did talk to the current station chief. His name is Brian Thomas. And so I wanted him to kind of update me on uh, what's happened since we were there 
25 years ago. The changes are accelerating in that um, back when you spoke to Dan, there was still a lot of speculation about what climate change was going to be like, right? And what, what the science was pointing toward as possible consequences or possible conditions that would be caused by what we're observing if the trends were to continue. And um, what, what we're noticing now is that, um, you know, this is, this is in it. We're in it, right? This is happening now. The, the changes that were sort of predicted or, or considered to be likely, um, they're now actually, they're happening, right? Um, we have much reduced sea ice, and when we have less sea ice, then we have more ocean heating, right? Uh, and then this is a positive feedback where the warmer ocean then has less ice in it. And so then it warms faster. And so uh, warmer ocean, more energy in the ocean, then gives more energy to the atmosphere. So you have more energy in the ocean for storms, more energy in the atmosphere for storms. In general, we have more erosion on the coastlines here in, in Alaska and Arctic than we have in the past. So there's, there's definitely things that we can see happening right now. So you've seen it firsthand. We do, and we've seen it, we've seen it now for years, right? This is not a new thing. This is something that, um, that we've been seeing. Um, and it's not, it's not something that is very surprising in terms of um, the science pointed toward it. But, um, but living it, you know, and, and, and seeing it happen is, is different. 1997, 25 years ago, was before An Inconvenient Truth, that film by uh, Al Gore. Yeah, Almost 15 years. So it came out almost 10 years ago, but we were there long before that. So um, when it came out, well, have you seen it? I have. I saw it when it came out, but I haven't seen it since. It's pretty scary. Yeah. So... um, well, let's just listen to a clip from, you know, Al Gore it won an Academy Award, and here's, here's a little bit from An Inconvenient Truth. The Arctic is experiencing faster melting. If this were to go, sea level worldwide would go up 20 feet. This is what would happen in Florida, around Shanghai, home to 40 million people. The area around Calcutta, 60 million. Here's Manhattan, the World Trade Center. So now the the vice president is still leading this cause. Uh, he's formed a nonprofit group called the Climate Reality Project. Um, it, it urges immediate action to reverse what it calls, you know, a global crisis. Um, I, I talked to um, Al Gore's chief of staff uh, last week, and she was she was very nice. She tried to hook me up with Al Gore. And uh, he was not available because of the the bill that was just signed, oh, or the act, right. the, the the Reduction Act, and uh, Inflation Reduction. And uh, they're very busy working on that. And there's some sort of worldwide symposium. She also tried to get me hooked up with the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project, and she wasn't available. But um, I did talk to the other side course, to be balanced yes. uh, and fair. But, you know, there are scientists out there that um, believe that this climate change isn't necessarily all man-made and uh, is reversible. Uh, I talked to uh, Dr. David Legates, who is a retired professor at the University of Delaware and is a research fellow at the Independent Institute. And I asked him about what he thought of Gore's organization and specifically that documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Well, I, I follow it very little, um, given the fact that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, in my view, really science. It's more uh, political science, if you will. 
And so they're, they've got an agenda to set, and it's not to get the best science on the ground. Uh, but I think Vegan Truth demonstrated that, that it wasn't about science. It was about scaring people into action. Are you saying that's a lot of hype? Uh, yeah, that's a polite way of putting it, yeah. Dr. LeGates has firm opinions. Yes, he does. And certainly ones that the Climate Project people would strongly disagree with. And we should point out the majority of climate scientists yes. would disagree with. Yes. yes. Uh, but LeGates was part of the Trump administration uh, as far as climate. He, he was one of the advisors, and he contributed to a book uh, titled Hot Talk, Cold Science, Global Warming's Unfinished Debate. Uh, so I then pose this question to Dr. Legates about scientists uh, who say we're running out of time. So a lot of scientists are saying, you know, we're reaching a point of no return and it's dire. And are, are they crying wolf? Uh, my argument is I think they are. Um, I don't see dramatic climate change. I mean, we look at hurricanes you look at tornadoes, you look at a number of things, and once you account for the changing observational bias, you get that there's lots of variability, uh, but no long-term trends. Uh, same with heat waves, same, you know. And so the, the issue becomes that uh, we have lots of variability in climate. We go through warm periods, cold periods, wet periods, dry periods, um, but nevertheless, that climate varies. Uh, we happen to be in a warmer period right now, uh, in part due, as I said, to human activity through land use change, through carbon dioxide uh, effects, but also uh, the sun has become a little more intense. And so it's part natural, part human induced, uh, but not disastrous and not heading towards this somehow magic tipping point that we get to a place where we get a runaway fireball earth. All right, Dr. LeGates uh, was at the University of Delaware. We've heard from him. Let's go back to Barrow, Alaska, where NOAA scientist Brian Thomas is, and you talked to him. Yes, um, and he, he talked about, you know, the natural weather cycles uh, and trends, and this is what he had to say. So our data doesn't show a cycle. Um, our data shows a trend that has been happening for the last 49 years since we've been observing it here. Mm -hmm. um, and the trend is in one direction, right? There's, there's no cycle. So on, on a longer time scale, you know, are, are there cycles in, in the earth system? Yes. But the question is whether the changes that we're observing are part of that longer cycle or if they're um, effects that are happening on a shorter cycle because of human activity. I want to go back 25 years now because I want to know okay. a little bit more about your experiences okay. in Barrow, Alaska. Oh, yeah. It, it was, it was, I guess, a trip of a lifetime. Yeah. Now, um, I, so I've been to Iceland, which yes. is south of Barrow, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, just only a little part of northern Iceland is above the Arctic Circle. Right. And I went in the summer when it never got dark. You're there in January in Barrow. Did, it, did you ever see light? Well, uh, a little bit. It was light about two hours a day, but it was like dusk. And I had this horrible uh, experience on the flight from Juneau to Barrow. There was a, a pilot on the plane uh, not flying it, but was a passenger. And um, he started talking to us about what we were doing because he saw the TV gear. And uh, I told him we were going up to do some television reports. And he said, well, good luck with that because it's dark 24 hours a day up there right now. And it scared me to death that we were going to spend a week in total darkness and, I mean, my career flashed before my eyes because I didn't think we would get much video. So you're not scared of the dark. You're scared of spending a lot of KATV's money to go up and not get— And not get much of anything. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, understand. our lights could not— Penetrate. I <laughs> yeah, got you. the tundra. I got you. Or, you know, the, the, the Arctic Ocean that had frozen over. Fortunately, it, it was light about two hours a day— mm. And um, but it never got completely light. It was sort of like dusk. Mm -hmm. 
uh, for that two hours. But I talked to Ned, and he sort of describes our initial experience there. It's just such a vast expanse up there in that part of the world. People just don't realize how barren it is, especially in the wintertime. All right, so that's a conversation you had with Ned Permy recently. Last week, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So um, while we were there, we also wanted to, to kind of make it personal and find out what it was like to live there because there are several thousand people who, who live in the town. So we got together with a group of people in one of the few local restaurants. By the way, it was called Arctic Pizza. And um, <laughs> Ned talked to them about, you know, life— there and then how they cope with the darkness. Tell me some of the fun things that you all do here. I mean, darkness, and then I guess uh, in the summertime, what are some of the great things you do during dark? And, and oh. anybody can jump in. I'll swing the mic. <laughs> well, the fun thing is to meet people like this. <laughs> you never know who you're going to meet here, but uh, summertime, a phenomenal amount of birds come up to the to the tundra to nest, and it's. That's that's pretty interesting, and also in the spring and fall there's whaling that happens here, and that's also very exciting. How about in the winter time? The winter there's skiing. It's absolutely beautiful to watch the ocean freeze and the ice come and go, and the light and the different phenomena, the northern lights and the storms, <laughs> and lots of socializing and eating. We were there just in time for one of the big big activities and. I asked Ned to to kind of pick up that story. The citizens up there, they get very excited when the sun starts to come back, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. And they were celebrating at the time we were up there by having, I think, what they called Race for the Sun. Yeah. Uh, it, It was like a big 5K race. And I think everybody in town got involved in it one way or the other. And it was 20 below zero. It, it was. It was. Wow. Um, yeah, so. We're, we're so we go up there not expecting to cover a 5K race. <laughs> I think that's legit. That, you wouldn't, that wouldn't be on your radar. <laughs> yeah. And so we're trying to figure out, all right, it's 40 below or 20 below. You know, when when you've got those kind of numbers, it doesn't really matter. Um you so I've got in the SUV and our photographer Larry Potter got in the back and opened up the back and we started shooting video of the, the racers and he actually did an impromptu interview with one of them out the back of the car. Why in the world do you do something like this? Slow down, Randy. Well. I don't know if you're a runner. I guess you have to run when you can. And for the most part, it's not so bad. My feet get kind of cold, and so do my hands. I love this guy. He's like, ah, it's fine. If my hands get cold, my my feet feet get get cold. cold. Yeah. And I mean, he was bundled up. They were all bundled up. I mean, you have to be. Yes. It's dangerous if you're not. Right. Right. Okay. but I remember the signs all over town that said, beware of polar bears. And it says, uh, do not leave children unattended. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just polar bears wandering around. They were telling me that a guy had gone out on a on an ice, you know, what are they called? Flow, uh, Jet ski type oh. thing. Uh, but, that sounds horrible. Well, but he had gone out and... Um, they never heard from him again. They they found his jet ski and they assumed oh that a polar bear had chased okay. him down and grabbed him off of it. Oh my! Yeah, God, I never want to go to this place. Yeah, a couple other little trivial things. Uh, liquor is outlawed there. Oh, I'm out, I'm, the polar bears had me reconsidering, but if liquor <laughs> is outlawed, I am not going to Barrow, yeah. Alaska. And there's the aurora borealis. Now that. Did you see the Northern Lights? Yes. Oh, and goodness. we, um, well, I would always travel with my Nikon. And, you know, 25 years ago, I was shooting film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there weren't digital cameras. And, uh, yeah, that which is a whole other problem we ran into because you would go out in that kind of weather and, sud- you know, immediately your batteries would go dead. Mm-hmm. 
So it, I guess it didn't really matter that it was only light two hours a day. We could only shoot for about 30 minutes, and we'd have to recharge our batteries. But I really wanted a picture of the Aurora Borealis, which, way. yeah, and, you know, you take a time exposure. And But we also wanted to get video. Well, what, and this was my idea, I'll admit it, it was really stupid, but Ned will tell the story about what we did our last night there. What we wanted to do was to go out and, um, and, and see the Aurora Borealis firsthand ourselves. And so we left the hotel not really thinking about the ramifications of it, but we left at night and we began driving to get away from the lights of town so that we could see it really, really well. And so we kept driving and driving and driving. And I don't know, we probably didn't go that many miles. But the thing is, we were just in such an abandoned wasteland area. And like you said, signs out there, beware of polar bears. Well, what I realized, and I remember that I was the one that said this, while you and our photographer, Larry Potter, were in the car with me, and we were driving away from town, and it was like 60 below zero. And we got to the point where we could see the northern lights, the Aurora Borealis, really well. And we wanted to stop the car and begin to film and to photograph. But I realized if you shut this car off and it does not start again, we're dead. Mm -hmm. I really believe that we could have, that could have been our demise. I have to say, Randy Dixon, I'm glad that Ned Purvey knew you at that stage in your career where you could convince him to go do these things. I'm glad I know you at this stage when you yeah. just come to my studio. When it, well, and I'll say to heck with it. I'll <laughs> stay home and watch it on TV. Yeah. Wow. But, what a. But I got a great picture. There you go. And um, yeah, it ended up being a really great trip and a great series of reports. It was very informative. And, and I. Not to brag, but I think it was kind of cutting edge to do it back then. Well, yeah. So you would Ned do his forecast live from there? Would no. You use a okay. So you just recorded everything and brought it back. Right. Okay. Right. But And we did several weather-related things over the gotcha. years. We, we studied lightning. We went out to New Mexico. Uh, we, we studied wind at, uh, I think, Texas Tech. So we, okay. Ned did a lot of... Uh, Cool. Things other than stand in front of a chroma key wall. I like it. I like it. Thanks so much for sharing this. No, I loved it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for letting me, you know, take a stroll down memory lane. This is better than a slideshow, i got to tell you. <laughs> Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You'll be back next week. Yes, sir. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas Retirement Community, catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering daily activities, various living options, plus wellness facilities, aquatic center, and spa services. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us on this Monday. The latest exhibition from Art Ventures explores expression and identity through fashion and design. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth visited the gallery in Fayetteville to learn more. In a sunny showroom in downtown Fayetteville, Kathleen Schwarz points to a mannequin dangling with colorful circles of overlaid satin fabric. I did a lot of her art pieces in satin, and then I just made them into little paillettes. So, you see, like, and it's like faces, like all the different faces of humanity. Schwarz, a fashion and textile designer, is one of the featured artists in Threads of Identity, the most recent exhibition from Art Ventures in Fayetteville. For this exhibit, she says she used the images from her sister, a painter, and another featured artist in the show, Cheryl Keller, to make the fabric patterns. Well, I just love to work with my sister's art. I mean, it's a synergy between the two of us, and it just kind of ties us together, you know, like a thread that ties us together every day. And, you know, we can talk back and forth about it. It's just something to 
to be creative in this time. And, you know, it's more of a creative outlet. And then once we see that people actually like it, then it becomes, you know, exciting. Threads of Identity, which examines how fashion and style are intertwined with culture, includes 14 featured and visiting artists in mediums ranging from painting and textiles to ceramics and jewelry design. Executive Director of Art Ventures, Lakeisha Edwards, says the exhibit interrogates the meaning behind the clothes that we wear. So when we were talking about the theme for this particular exhibition, what to even entitle it, we started talking about the different threads that make up what we consider the tapestry of life. So it's culture, it's fashion, it's um, the things that we wear, it's the things that we like to be around, it's the culture of um, what has been passed down through generations. So as you walk through the gallery, you see things that are from different cultures. You see artists that are expressing themselves in different ways. Someone may look at something and say, how does that fit into fashion or how does that fit into the threads of identity? But if you look at the artist statements, then you'll you'll understand a little bit more of how that artist creates and then why it was so important for them to show that part of the fabric of life. For Eric Andre, a ceramics artist and the show's curator, he says fashion was not something he was particularly interested in, until he spoke with other artists about where they drew inspiration for their work. And I was like, okay, I think fashion goes beyond, you know, just wearing shirts, you know, like it's more of like identity and cultural things. So I wanted to call for different artists and how they're drawing all this inspiration from how they're, you know, like using that as a way to create their identity or to show their identity to convey where they're coming from, what they do and what that means to them and, you know, and others. Kind of like creating that community of, you know, diverse people with different ways of, I mean, understanding things as far as culture is concerned. Andre says he wanted the pieces in Threads of Identity to show the audience how art and life are connected. I always say this, that in Ghana, um, Art is not separate from culture. Art and culture is like inseparable, they're the same. So we eat art, we speak art. We sleep with art, we walk art, we wear art. Everything is art. You can separate it. Like when you travel over here where you have art, we have culture, it's, it's not like that. Behind Andre is a four by four foot framed patchwork by artist Japheth Asidu Quarte. In it, bright green and yellow patterns weave between a just-visible American flag. It's made of um, a kintic cloth. It's a cloth that's very significant in our culture. And he was trying to talk about being in the U.S. and having dual identity, because now he is forced to, um, like, being American and also trying to still be African or Ghanaian. So that you can see that um, no, U.S. flag plus the Kinte wave together. It's kind of like, I mean, bringing the idea of the duality. And that was the reason why I wanted to call for this. I wanted to see how other people also think about, you know, what fashion means to them in creating the identity or finding the root or understanding who they are, where they are, and why they are there, you know. And Schwarz says this show is about more than just aesthetics. It's about people. She says the clothes she designs only reach their full potential once they're being worn. And it's always the models. When we do a show, it's always the models that actually really bring it to life. And we get very um, attached (laughs) to our models. In fact, one of the girls that was here today has worn several of our pieces. That model is Kay Jolie Oneris, standing on the stairway at the front of Art Ventures. She models a pair of pants that Schwartz and Keller collaborated on. Um, but I, I call these like the magic pants. Because <laughs> when I'm just walking them, I just be flowing. And I don't know, like I get a lot of compliments from them and just look at them. You just never see any pants like this before. They just make you feel magical. Oneris is based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, but often works in northwest Arkansas. And she says shows like this one give exposure to more local designers and are helping to expand the fashion scene in the region. Um, there's plus size, there's 
short sizes, all sizes, there's all colors, it's all ethnicities, and it's just exciting to me because other people get other opportunities to be themselves. Threads of Identity is on display at the Art Ventures Gallery at 20 South Hill Avenue in Fayetteville, now through August 28th. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. The second annual Fort Smith International Film Festival is Friday and Saturday at Temple Live. The schedule features 137 official selections representing work from more than 30 countries, nations, and tribes. The festival is carrying the theme of Borderlands, exploring shared humanity experience at the borders between countries, nations, states, cities, neighborhoods, languages, races, genders, cultures, social economic classes, and ages. Tickets range from $10 to $30. You can find out more at fortsmithfilm.com. And banjo enthusiasts are going to have an entire weekend and an entire town to enjoy playing or listening to banjos. The 2022 Convention of All Frets in Eureka Springs, August 30th through September 1st. That's a nonprofit musical organization that is comprised of banjo, ukulele, mandolin, and guitar players from around the country. Free concerts Wednesday, August 31st and Thursday, September 1st in Basin Park from 2 to 4 each day. Each night of the convention, there will be multi-act concerts at the Best Western Inn of the Ozarks. Each of the three nights from 7 to 10, admission for those concerts, $5. Election Day is November 8th, but do you know what all is on the ballot? Do you know why it's harder for a citizen-initiative constitutional amendment to be approved rather than a legislatively referred one? And maybe the most important question of election season... Does my vote matter? Hi, I'm Daniel Carruth. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. And I'm Matthew Moore. In the new season of Natural Election, we're going to be talking about ballot measures, the impact of locally elected officials, and much more. Plus, a live conversation on September 27th at the Pryor Center on the Fayetteville Square. Season 2 of Natural Election launches September 13th. Subscribe for free wherever you listen. Speaking of podcasts, the KUAF-produced show Resilient Black Women is starting season number two. Joy McGowan and Denisha Simpson are back to discuss mental health and equitable access to mental health. On the first episode of the new season of Resilient Black Women, Joy and Denisha welcome Ms. Dorothy Marcy, licensed professional counselor, educator, mentor, mother, and proud black woman. She shares insight and stories from her own life and her recent trip to Egypt, and celebrates the resiliency and beauty of black women. Here is just a portion from that episode. I know when I was a child growing up, my oldest brother had some struggles, and I was always so mad at my parents because they wouldn't get help for him. Mm-hmm. What did I know about what help was available to a little black boy mm-hmm. back in the 40s and 50s? Zero. Mm-hmm. There was no help. There was no professional psychologist, psych counselor, psychiatrist who would work with that child. Mm-hmm. And there was no fam- black family who could afford it mm-hmm. if they would. And I think that piece of our history is still is still with us to some extent that we don't come from a culture that accesses those services for for many reasons. Those mm-hmm. I think you know being the main ones. Yeah, we didn't have access no, to those services. No, we didn't. And and then there was just the whole cultural perspective, white and black, mm-hmm. on needing psychological help, needing counseling, the idea of being crazy. Yes. um, I personally believe that that is a made-up word. Mm -hmm. You cannot lose your mind. You will always have it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love that reframe. (laughs) That's so true. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have some struggles. Mm -hmm. And so I know it is very difficult for us to seek out counseling and really I recommend that black folk get a black counselor I really Mm -hmm. do you have to have somebody who knows your history Mm -hmm. and I mean not just the history from slavery Mm -hmm. the society that we live in makes it look like we stepped into slavery out of a void, Mm -hmm. that we had no culture, we had no history, we had no background, no Mm -hmm. nothing. And I heard someone say the other day, um, if a thousand-page 
book was written about African-American history, the last two pages would be about slavery. Wow. Yeah. 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 We have a long and deep and rich culture that we come from. Even before, yeah. And so the world doesn't know that. And neither do we. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We don't either. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. I want to go back to something that you said that I think is really important that we try to keep before our listeners all the time is mm-hmm. although we may be black women and we are trying to speak specifically to how black women or black people should engage with mental health, what you're saying or you said earlier was there was a stigma for all of us. Oh, yeah. The it was something for everybody because even as I've heard you talk about counseling, the field of counseling and psychology before, um, of just recognizing how it started with a white man, um, white men studying other white men. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that, I mean, that takes out white women, that takes out, right? Oh, so much. All of everybody. Yeah. And unless you were a rich white man. Of course you don't think counseling is for you. And also, if you're not a rich white man, you're not mentally healthy. If you were going to create something, wouldn't you make it like you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology, mm-hmm. what is meant being mentally healthy? Mm-hmm. Male, wealthy, white, mm-hmm. um, owning class, all these things. Mm -hmm. So the further you are from that, the further you are from mental health. Mm -hmm. And the more you can behave in those ways. Mm -hmm. Ways that we would say are dysfunction. We know you can't be white and and male. Yes. But you can act like them. Yes. And if you behave in that way Mm. in our society, that is mental health. But Mm. if you behave like black folk... Mm. I don't know. Y'all are pretty loud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, y'all laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, y'all don't have good boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to use my profession to shape somebody, mm. to help them to fit into what I consider an oppressive society. Mm-hmm. My perspective is that I want to be an asset to you becoming you, mm-hmm. whatever that is. I don't have any judgments about it, and I don't have any goals for you. I often, when somebody comes in to see me, my spiel is this. <laughs> you come to see a counselor because you feel lost, mm. and you're looking for someone who's not lost, and that is not me. <laughs> mm, I love it. <laughs> I don't have all of my answers, and I don't have any of yours. Mm-hmm. I am just not lost in your woods. That is the only difference. Mm-hmm. But worse than being lost is being lost and alone. Mm-hmm. My job is the alone part. Mm-hmm. I will hold your hand while you find your way. And that's all I can do. You can hear the entire episode that starts the second season of Resilient Black Women at KUAF.com or by going to any major podcast distributor. Denisha Simpson and Joy McGowan are back for the new season with their guest, Dorothy Marcy, on that first episode. This is Ozarks at Large. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the Equality Crew has created a digital back-to-school guide specifically for LGBTQ plus students in Arkansas. And, you know, with that, it pretty much boils down to you have the right to be who you are. You have the right to be respected as who you are. And you deserve the resources you need to be successful. The story on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. And by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. It's been three years since we were live at Roots Festival for Ozarks at Large. This is a live edition of Ozarks as part of the Fayetteville Roots Festival. But Friday, August 26th, we're back with a live radio show from the Fayetteville Public Library. Musicians at this year's Roots Festival will join us on the library's new event center stage. Join us in person or live right here on the radio for the return of the live Ozarks at Large Roots Festival broadcast Friday, August 26th at noon.
The Razorback soccer season off to an unexpected start. The St. Louis Billikens upset the number 8 Razorbacks last Thursday 1-0. And then yesterday's scheduled home opener against DePaul was canceled because of COVID-related issues with the DePaul team. Up next, Thursday night match at Oklahoma. The first home match will now be this Sunday at 1 against Arkansas State. Little Wing Productions presents The Righteous Brothers, the legendary American musical duo, live in concert Saturday, December 10th at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. Reserve tickets go on sale this Friday, August 26th at tickets at thundertix.com. For more, theaud.org. KUAF is supported by Dog Party USA, offering supervised boarding and daycare in an off-leash environment for dogs of all sizes. Dog Party follows strict vaccine requirements and COVID guidelines for a safe environment. More information available at dogpartyusa.com. Before we wrap up today's show, giving our last words mostly to Cree Banton, host of the podcast Undisciplined. You may have heard my conversation with her and Undisciplined producer Matthew Moore last week when we were previewing the third season. Well, here's something you didn't hear from a question I asked both of them before the interview to get a good audio level. Cree, what is your favorite vegetable? Callaloo. Very good. <laughs> Matthew, what is yours? Uh, mine is also Kalaloo, believe yeah. it or you, not. Do you know what Kalaloo is? I have no is? idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a spinach. Okay. It's a Jamaican kind of spinach that we eat. We really don't even necessarily eat it like a vegetable. Like it, We don't eat it like um, raw. Like as a side? So We cook it with like codfish, like salted ah, codfish. Oh. Yeah. All right. And um, like wrapped around the fish, no, or like just, salted. Like, so oh, if, you, if you have salted fish, so you like you boil the salt fish to get the salt out of it, oh. <laughs> or you put the salt in it to preserve it. It's right. almost like codfish was what they fed to the slaves, huh? Coming from up north, mm-hmm. and because all the lands in the Caribbean had to be used for sugar, right? Exactly. <laughs> so there was no local food grown. So, um, we get it. Boil out the salt. So you boil it like three times, mm-hmm. right? Because high blood pressure right. is a black issue. And then you tear it apart, like flick it out. Okay. Saute it in onions oh. and tomatoes and green peppers and stuff. Mm. And then you steam down the callaloo on it. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So Sounds it good. Looks, it looks something like this. Callaloo? Uh, callaloo. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So somewhat similar to like like collard greens. It's like collard greens or uh, yeah. Ooh. Said so Oh yeah. And oh, oh, oh. Uh and and you put a like a jalapeno in there or a... Well, Jamaicans tend to like spicier things. So yeah. yeah. So no, you, I like... you could saute it in pepper. Yeah. And, now we're talking. Yeah. Peppers, onions. I love onions. Yeah. Garlic. Can you yeah. pick up Callaloo here? I get it in the can, which is yeah. not optimal. Right. But um, Could it be grown here? or is it? I've grown it in okay. my backyard, but obviously hmm. by by October, you got to pack it right. up. Right, right. Yeah. Karee Banton is host of Undisciplined. Matthew Moore is the producer. The third season begins Wednesday. We'll have an excerpt from that episode on our show Wednesday. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Poto, Oklahoma. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanche Cock News Studio. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Daniel Carruth, and Randy Dixon. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional content today delivered by the newsroom at KUAR Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Kellums.